Oh, we have to record stuff? No, we're just going to record this. So, you, you're listening to Beer School, and I'm not going to do the normal introduction on this, because this is a historic audio. <laughs> this is from 11 years ago, at least, and this is something that yeah, Thor... Yeah, almost 11 years. It'll be 11 years in October. This is yeah. something that Thor captured on a camcorder back in the day at a homebrew club. Well, it was originally a homebrew club. What it was is, uh, back in 90... Uh, it was early in 98... Um, I belong to a club, and I guess I still belong if I pay my dues. <laughs> to a, a club called the um, the Draft Board. Okay, they've been around since '76, and they were the ones, guys, that uh, talked like to one Alan of the very Cranston. first. One of the very first. They were. They were the ones. This is the club that actually got the law changed from Cranston okay. to allow homebrewing in California. Right. This the, bald, the Bald Eagle. Alan Cranston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they were the they were. In, this is the club that did all that. Okay. So this the, the Draft Board. They've been around forever. Most of the guys there. Average age is, well, about 60. So, uh, anyway, so this thing started. It wasn't us, but some other club decided we're going to start this thing called the uh, Northern California Homebrewers Festival because there was one in Southern California that was going on. It was doing pretty well. So, they thought, well, we'll organize one for up here. And so, there were some committees. I forget what I was doing at the time. I was trying to remember those burned out brain cells. But what it really came down to is we ended up having this, like, camp out thing. It's up in Napa in this park. Okay. And, uh, I got up there a few minutes late before I could start my camcorder, but one of the guest speakers was uh, Fritz Maytag, uh, who I think is one of the uh, four far fathers, or whatever you want to call it, of the uh, microbrewing. Uh, the microbrewing, yeah. re, the re, the re, the re, yeah, the, the yeah. reset of beer, the reset of beer in California after Prohibition, and so. In this little um, uh, camcorder thing, I I took it and I made an audio file. I also have the video, but the video is a little jerky because it's you know old technology and stuff. Yeah. But uh, I, I sent it to Motor so he could um, put it on their site. And, and what the the gist of what he talks about is very interesting when you look back in time. So it's uh, ten and a half years, and the first thing he was talking about was that he was very scared that um, if you look on a shelf at your typical place. You see all these bottles of beer, hundreds and hundreds of microbrewers that really don't have their own niche. I mean, you've got like 50 different types of red beers that really don't have any distinct right. thing, and they're just labeling and marketing. And he's you, like, you know, saying, we have to, I have to worry about, you know, every day, and I think part is just him being modest, that we have to keep our, uh, our sales up. You know, we're concerned that it's just the market's been flooded with all these microbrewers. What he did not know, or may he, maybe he knew and he just didn't say so, right after that is when the microbrewery uh, industry just collapsed. And there was this huge purge, as you, I think it was around that time, right afterwards, yeah. where, uh, maybe it was the early 90s, where microbreweries were sprouting up everywhere before that, investors and the, stuff. The idea was, let's, this is the new thing, we'll throw money at this, right. we'll hire a brewer, and... You know, we'll make this. Uh, we'll you know, we'll do something with this. Right. Well, he he saw this before it happened and knew the meltdown was going to occur, and foresaw that you know this industry is going to get shook up bad, and it did. And so that's one thing he foresaw. The other thing he was uh, he he was interested in. He said, you know, uh, I had a at one point you'll see in his little speech. He says I had a uh, guy come in who's a um, uh, what are this guy's called. Uh, they tell you how um, how uh, efficient you are, efficiency expert, right? And he yeah. said, you're very inefficient. <laughs> he 
And, and his so inflation wait, in the, was in the, in the brewing process, or no, no, he's the... very efficient in his uh, management style. Or oh, his, I see. So he'll say, you know, you'll do something, but then as soon as you get it on track, you, you lose interest. And his whole point is, I like to do new things. I like to do it when it's new and different. And so, and then right after that, he segues into so, so. What I'm doing right now is, as you may know, I'm producing this distilled beverage, which I've been trying to do for years, and finally got off the ground. And he talks about how he had to change the laws of California uh-huh. to start making, at that time, juniper. Now, if you look back in time... And, and old Petrero. And old Petrero, right. If you look back in time, and you think, you know, that was that was good forethought. He thought, this might be a new thing. Just like when we did microbrews, you know, one back when I started, when I bought into Anchor Steam and redid the whole brewery, that's what brought the, the microbrewery. That's what started the whole revolution here. Right. He's thinking the same thing about distilled spirits. And if you think about what's going on today, you've got Hangar One, you've got that little place down the street from here. Uh, right, the 209. 209, yeah. All these little micro distilleries, okay? He saw that. You know, one of the things he was also pushing is his rye, which is, I don't know if it's as popular as he hoped it was. He's thinking, historically, whiskey in this country was not uh, the whiskey that we think of, which is made with corn. Right. Okay. The reason they made it with corn is because you had all this corn in these fields. Well, part of it wasn't it wasn't taxed. That could have been part of it too. His his premise was is that the reason they couldn't do it is because it was too expensive to transport bulk corn over the hills to where they need to bring it. You could distill it and put it in a barrel, and that could sell. Right. Okay. So they sold that east coast, west coast, wherever from the middle. So he's but originally the original whiskey you think of cowboy stuff is rye. Right, and rye fell out of fashion probably here in the forties. It's all about taxation, is it? Yeah, it was a. It, it would, it's an interesting thing. We did a um, the research that we did for the um, the prohibition shows showed that rye people were up in arms about this because it was part of bread. It was part of the the bread right. making process. Yeah, rye bread, yeah, and so they wanted to make sure that rye was always available for for making bread rather than making whiskey even though it made a better product mm-hmm. they thought we'll tax this from this point of view and so that shut down the production of rye based whiskey and mm-hmm. it all switched to corn yeah from that it's I, I, very much maybe what happened i think when i look back in time i don't think i've actually had a really good rye whiskey you know it's out of it's yeah. you know nobody knows how to make it anymore yeah well, one thing he was saying is that you know when he started buying rye up, you'll see this in the little thing he, you know, the little uh, camcorder thing I have. He said, you know, it's a funny thing that happened. And when I started buying rye up, I went, the supplier started talking to the other brewers and said, you know, Anchor Seen's buying a whole lot of rye. You better make a rye beer too. <laughs> he said, I tried rye beer. It sucks. <laughs> All these little micro. I remember at the time he was talking about this. I remember laughing because you'll know, hear me laughing in the tape because I remember trying these rye beers and what the hell is this stuff. <laughs> And they were all trying to copy Anchor Steam, not knowing that they had a secret distillery right. going. That they were, that they, <laughs> they changed, weren't making rye beer. They weren't making rye beer. They are making rye, rye whiskey. Right. right. Rye, rye, or excuse me, uh, distilled laws got changed. Yeah. They've got this this done. Nobody was on the radar on right. this. and So he's, he's spilling the beans at the, the Northern California Homebrewers Festival. It's a nice, if you see the picture I have on the website, you can grab that too. It's like a bunch of empty chairs, and there's Fritz up there in his jeans talking you know like on the mountain and he, he is a great speaker he really is you know the, i don't know about these days i haven't heard him speak oh yeah he's still yeah. eloquent to, yeah. to, to him he 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 uh uh embodies the 
that microbrewery tradition of like going out there being maverick, you know. Well, and this is a good a good uh, example of this is the the barrel aged beer that they've that they've started to make right. based on the barrels that they were aging the old Potrero in. Right. Right. So they have these barrels anyway. Mm-hmm. They're sitting. They've been sitting there for five years or ten years or however long it is has mm-hmm. been, and now. The brewers are are looking at the the barrel aged uh, craze. I guess is the way to just. There's, it. A, there's an economic reason for that too, right? Yeah, they don't want to throw the barrel away well, for no reason. Well, you can't use a, ris- a whiskey barrel twice in this right. country. Oh, you can't. It's a law. So, Why? Like it, I don't know what it is, but that's more the law. It's a stupid uh, law. I that's think like that's prohibition law. I don't, whatever. Maybe it was, it okay, maybe the barrel makers happy. But anyways, I I'd heard that they. They only use it once. Like in all the stuff they get from like uh uh what do you call it? Um uh the uh like the place we're talking about the whiskey place, um Jack, Jack Daniels, Daniels, right? Yeah, Jack Daniels. That's used once. Right. Then it turns into planters and stuff, right? Right. So you can't use it for whiskey again. So what else can you use it for? You well, get them dirt cheap. Can't use it for wine. And the same thing with the can't wine guys, use it right? With wine. Yeah, they right. can use it once, right? Once. So you can get sherry cast. You can get all sorts of stuff. Now you can sell it to the markets in Europe. They can reuse them. Right. That's one thing they do with them. But there's also a possibility they can use them here. That's what I'd heard. I could be wrong, but that's what I'd well, heard. See, that they can use and that, this is why it's really cool to see... Uh, the Barrel Age Beer Festival, at least in Hayward, right? Sure. And, and it's gone. Is it at the uh, Bistro? It, or? Yeah, it's at the Bistro. So it's gone from 20, 20 different to 30 different to 50 different to 60 different, you know, and everybody's got something aging in a barrel at this point. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty exciting to see. You know, and it's everything from from uh, Cabernet to uh, to uh, Chardonnay to whiskey to bourbon to oh, for barrels tequila, yeah, beer. like they they kind of don't care what they're aging it in. They're, well, you're gonna they're, they're experimenting with it. Yeah. And you get all those those crazy flavors. Yeah, you're gonna get stuff it. that you may not like, but you're gonna get some really magical stuff too. Yeah. I mean, it's not a new idea. No, you know, this is an old concept, but uh, it's once again so, being brought back from history, and luckily we get to. Uh, so, is one of the things that mm-hmm. he says on the tape is that someday. There will be a twenty dollar bottle of beer. No, but one thing he does talk about, as far as the bottles, is he talks about the the juniper that he's putting out with the gin, right? Yeah. And he said he went out to the liquor store and looked at the price of stuff, and he said, you know, there's there's all these gins out there, but like the most expensive gins, a few bucks, you know, like ten bucks, twelve bucks, whatever. When he looked at the vodka aisles, though. He found like there was Grey Goose and Kettle One at the time. They're commanding a higher price point, right. twenty three dollars a bottle. So he decided, well, I'm making a uh, a boutique, you know, distillery. So I'm going to price it at this to make it make sense for us. Mm-hmm. And he said they're doing quite well. And the whole premise that I got from it was not only did he see it did well, but it did well for everyone else. Right. St. George's Spirits was around back then. They were only doing stuff like Grappa and Eau de Vie for the European markets. They started making stuff here. I bet you they're making a lot more money with, with the Hangar One and stuff like that. And they ever made shipping stuff over? Well, I know I that. Uh, uh, I know that a year ago, the bottle of absinthe that I bought from St. George was eighty bucks, right? And I didn't even think. I didn't even think twice. Yeah. Like, yeah, okay, of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I think that he's right that um, that spirits will they're in the same range. And he was saying, but not, you know, not just but not just spirits, but beer as well, right? Yeah, no, you know the idea that that um, you know you take this. You take the uh, 
the blend of Anchor beer that was aged in the old Potrero barrel for six months or a year, nine, whatever it was, now commands a, a premium, a, a unique price. And yeah. they're like, it's worthwhile for us to do. Yeah, We have an interesting product. Not everyone's going to agree with this product, but it's not for everybody. Right. I think he sees that, I mean, I, I think you might see the same thing, where as you, maybe 20 years ago, you started off going from Henry Weinhardt's, which was a smaller brewery, maybe you discovered Sierra, right? Mm-hmm. Then you just, you know, Anchor Steam got discovered, and that's how I'm thinking about my past. And then you started getting into more microbrews, and, and you always increase your palate by what things you've tried and what you're into. Right. Some people branch into wine. Those people who branch into wine, they see all different kinds of wines. Then what do you branch into? What's next? Heroin. <laughs> <laughs> Thailand hookers and heroin. No, the next awfully distilled spirits would be the Don't next give away our plans for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> I'm missing out, aren't I? <laughs> I? I have to say that, you know, that... Because of beer, I've enjoyed some amazing things that I don't think I would have had a palate to understand. <laughs> Italian hookers. <laughs> and food probably, too. As well. Yeah, food. Oh, yeah. I'm not eating Italian hookers. I you think it's the other way around. You pay them to eat you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if their crabs have chlamydia, that's a problem. <laughs> Speaking of. Right. All right, well, so we're just going to roll this tape. <laughs> we'll just cut that part. <laughs> yeah, no, we're just going to roll this tape now and uh, enjoy Fritz Maytag. Sorry about the quality. It's uh, it's what it is. It is. It's uh, not the checks. Not <laughs> I may re-record it for you if I get a chance, but I, I sent well, him the. No, no, no. I mean, however it comes out, it's fine. Well, see, originally I had it and I decoded it down for real audio, and then oh. I re-upped it to MP3. I think I get it off the original source if I can find the tape and get it in 128-bit original. Oh, that would be nice. Yeah, doubly, doubly, doubly. I can even throw it through a you know surround sound decoder. Well, no, if I, if I if I if I just have the capture, then I can sweeten it. So. Let me get the capture again. But I sent it to him yeah. what I had, which was a 2.8 megabyte file that Ugh. blew into 28 megabytes, went turned to MP3. And I'm like, yeah, well, the quality's I, not there because no, it's just yeah, bumping yeah. it. Well, if you can find the, I can, t- the original tape, it's a DV tape, right? The yeah. original first DV is yeah. right from Canon. So I think it's 128 bit on the tape. Yeah. It's forty four. It's forty eight k. Right. It's, it's a compressed. It's, it's actually straight out forty eight k. Yeah. So I'll re encode it. Right on. And if you want to, I'll send you the WAV file. Nice. You can do it from there. Then I'll just uh, compress it and make it sound. All right, so that's what you're going to hear now. All right. And out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Done something that we didn't even realize. We had built by far the most modern and the most sophisticated small brewery in the world. But we were like the home brewers I was talking about in, in back in Oakland 20 years ago. We were still hesitant. We didn't realize what we had done. We were still scared to death that the beer would go sour any day and that we, that we would get caught uh, trying to sneak by as real brewers when, in fact, we didn't know what we were doing. And we didn't realize. We had an absolutely stunningly brilliantly modern, efficient, clean brewery making the most traditional kinds of beers. It was an amazing thing. The breweries in England shocked us, really. We saw only one small brewery that had anything like the orderly cleanliness and pride of tools that we had come to have as our philosophy, and we did like that little brewery. Um, Other than that, we were quite shocked, and 
We were also very impressed with the combination of some tradition, but also just no end of shortcuts. They were brewing ale in England, we thought, just the way they had been brewing Anchor Steam when I bought the brewery, with a lot of shortcuts and sugar and, uh, you know, tricks and, and things. And uh, one of the things that we saw when we were there was uh, barley wines, which I had never really known about. And there were one or two still made in bottles. I'm sure they weren't all malt or dry hopped or anything, but they were there and in little bottles. And when we tried them, we tried everything. Uh, we tried these barley wines. We thought, now there's something with some character. This has got character. And besides that, and, and it's rich and um, flavorful and different. And why are these selling? And we asked people, well, who drinks the barley wine? Oh, they laughed. They said, the little old ladies drink the barley wine before they go home. They drink it before bed. And it was a joke as a product. It was like a nightcap sort of thing for, for grandma, you know. Well, we, we thought that was wrong. We were just, I was just inspired by this barley wine idea. And I've often used this example of talking to bigger brewers or people that are trying to give the spirit of the, our brewery to when you have a little brewery like we had then, and even now, if you're small enough and flexible enough and proud of what you do and, and able to gear up and do something, you can just go home and do something. And we went home and we said, we're going to brew a barley wine. We only had five employees. So they all said, sure. There were, there were Gordon and I and three others, you know. Oh, they said, okay, what's that? We told them, well, we're going to make it like it used to be. Made. We're going to make an almost first work barley wine, and we're going to dry hop it. It's going to be the greatest thing there ever was. So we did in November of 1975. And we kind of forgot about it. I don't think we bottled it for six months, nine months, or something like that. But we were awfully proud of it, and that's how the old foghorn came about. We had seen that these things tended to have humorous names, and I must say, I think the whole amateur brewers have gotten better names even than the professionals anymore. I've seen some marvelous names, but uh, that's how we did the old foghorn. Then we did the pale ale for Christmas right away. Right after that, we said, okay, now we've done the barley wine. Now we're going to make our version of a modern of the way an English ale should be made today. Again, all malt, naturally carbonated, dry hopped, which none of these things existed even in England at that time. Uh, and no adjuncts of any kind. The real whole hops. So just absolutely pure traditional ale. So we did that. That was our Christmas ale. We made 600 pieces of that. We, in those days, we didn't commercialize the Christmas ale. I was scared to death that we would be run out of town for making a product, a beer that was identified with Christmas. But I didn't want to say winter brew or something. I wanted, I was, I wanted to be ornery and, and, be, and say Merry Christmas. So I said, Merry Christmas, Happy Beer on the label. And we gave it out to our friends, and we sold a little bit of it. We had 600 pieces of it. That would be a real collector's item to the 75 Christmas ale. Then we didn't have capacity to brew ales, so we couldn't keep going. We just made a Christmas ale every, every Christmas. And that's where the idea of the Christmas sale changing every year came from, because it had been a whole year since we brewed it, and we had new ideas and new ways of things we wanted to experiment with. So the first two or three were different, only because we thought we were learning and we wanted to keep learning and no one would really bother and nobody would compare it to the previous one. So we went ahead and made them differently. Then that became a theme, which I like very much, that we give the public the gift, if you will, of taking a chance and trying to experiment just a little bit. We're getting ready, I think, to maybe print up a little pamphlet and actually tell people what we've been doing for 25 years. I think we're on number 24 now. Um, we try every year to do something which, if you knew what, or, or at least one thing, which if you knew about it, uh, you as brewers, 
would say, oh, that's interesting. It doesn't have to be weird or terribly risky, although we've done some pretty weird things, but things that would be very interesting from a brewer's point of view, even some that were not uh, wildly interesting. At one point we used a malt that was a brand new variety. Nobody uh, was really using it yet. It just come out on the market and we made our Christmas sale 100% from that malt that was different that year. And then uh, we started making it from uh, barley grown up at Tule Lake. Anyway, so that's kind of the theme of Christmas sale. And then the Anchor Creek beer. My friend Fred Huber, who ran a brewery in Monroe, Wisconsin, often on over the years, used to talk about the wheat beers in Germany, and I had never had any uh, back in the 70s, and so I decided that we should make a wheat beer. One of my jokes that I've been quoted at a lot and that I like is that I used to refer to the lighter beers as lawnmower beers. I was trying to be, to make fun of them, but at the same time not uh, mock them and to kind of relate to the brewers who were making those by saying that if you've ever mowed the lawn in the old days, in the old way, with a real push lawnmower, when you get through, you want a cold beer. Uh, there's no end to people who've done some hard work in the sun and who understand that completely. You want a cold beer, and you probably don't want a heavy, dark, high alcohol beer. You want a light, thin, thirst quenching, lower alcohol beer. This was my way of, of backhandedly uh, insulting or praising the Budweisers and Millers of this world, who, of course, were the, the arch enemy. We were trying to get this idea going that a little brewery could make different beer and, and survive. And, and people used to, I mean, people didn't understand that in the early years. Anyway, I wanted to make a lawnmower beer, if you will, uh, and prove that we could make a really interesting lawnmower beer, which is where Anchor Wheat Beer came from. We wanted, I wanted to make it have it with more wheat malt than any wheat beer in the world. We still use more, we believe, more than anyone, roughly two-thirds of the malt is wheat. Uh, and I wanted to make it in a clean, uh, clean style. By that I mean... Uh, a top fermenting ale yeast, but with everything just right. No wild yeast, no bacteria. I don't like either the Weisse or the Weizen beers of Europe. I wanted to make a clean, and I mean that from a brewer's point of view, I'm sure you understand what I mean, uh, wheat beer that would be like a summer, thirst quenching summer beer. It has evolved only slightly over the years. We made the first one in, in 1981. Uh, in August of uh, 81, and since then we've modified it ever so slightly. One thing we've done is to drop the original gravity a little bit. I like it that it's a lower alcohol beer. It's down, I'm actually not positive that it's under 3.2 at the moment or not, but it's close. We've tried to do that on purpose. Uh, uh, very slight changes, but I think we've pretty much hit the nail on the head when we started. Um, the last beer that we've done that's uh, a regular commercial product, we think, is the one we've just come out with. I hope some of you have had it, and that's our small beer, which I don't know why it took me so long to realize, but when we make old popcorn, we just throw the mash away, and the cows eat this 24-balling uh, uh, sweet mash, you know? It's, just, <laughs> it's absurd. Uh, so we started experimenting with sparging the old popcorn mash, and making a beer only from sparging. No, first we're just sparging. And 
because that, of course, is where the tradition of small beer came from, as we understand it, which goes back thousands of years under different names. You make a stronger brew, of course, from the first runnings and maybe a little sparking, and then you make a weaker brew. I, I've seen, I know, in Europe, in villages out in the country where people are poor, they make wine that way. They make real wine, and which they sell, and then they make their own wine by taking the red, the great pumice, adding sugar and water, and re-fermenting it, and they make, and that way they get kind of a rosé with a little bit of character, and that's what they drink. So that's small wine, if you will. So anyway, we've made Anchor small beer, which uh, is in a big 22-ounce bottle because it's easy for us to do in little projects that way, which I just think is terrific. It's very low in alcohol, two and a half, I think, by weight, and um, a very interestingly traditional product from that point of view. We won't make a whole lot of it unless people start buying a lot more old barbar. We hang on to old barbar for sentimental reasons. I think the idea is so good, but of course we don't sell it. Um, that's the end of my uh, thoughts. I hope it's been of some interest, but I would lo love to try to field some questions if you realize that I do have to have my persona on. <laughs> How about your rye uh, persuasion there? The rye whiskey? Yeah. I wanted to make rye whiskey tw 25 years ago. I like I knew, I'm sure, I, I read books on brewing and distilling and food products and stuff like that. And uh, I have, I think, a pretty well-developed intuitive consent. I like to see ahead. Uh, I saw that that two things. One, that rye whiskey was the original American whiskey, predated bourbon. Bourbon came from west of the eastern mountains where they could grow corn but couldn't get it economically to market, so they had to do something with it in order to make it was made whiskey. And you could concentrate it that way, and you could afford to bring a barrel of whiskey across the mountains where you couldn't afford to bring it away and load corn. But rye was the original American whiskey, and apparently along the East Coast, especially when the Scotch-Irish invasion came, really, in the mid-late 18th century, with people who knew how to make whiskey from, of course, barley, they made whiskey from uh, rye. And I loved it that it was out of fashion. There, there are one or two, well, actually there are about four rides out there. There's one you see everywhere in the world. Uh, other than that, they're out there, and especially in the West. I'll bet you none of you have ever ordered a, a rye on the rocks or a rye you know, with a chaser or whatever the way you might order a single malt to scotch. Rye is just kind of out of favor. And that just intrigued me in the fact that it was the original whiskey. And I always wanted to make uh, a rye whiskey. I had kind of this dream of doing it, partly because it is really a distilled beer, if you will. Of course, you don't put hops in beer that you make whiskey out of, but it is sort of taking beer to the last step, and that appealed to me. It's a long story. I had to end up changing some California law and a bunch of stuff. It's not easy to do because you don't want to offend anybody, but because I had to brewery and okay. we finally got a distillery going in 93, I think. I kept it secret. Uh, it's a, here's a story for you. Whether it's true or not, we like to chuckle. Uh, we started buying rye malt because my theory was that the rye whiskeys would have been made from 100% malted rye. Talking to somebody earlier about modern malts. Modern malts are great. Way back when, they had to use decoction malting and they had to use all, uh, I mean, decoction mashing, and the brewers would use all malt, I'm sure, because they couldn't use a mix of malt and of malted barley and unmalted. 
the malt itself barely had the enzymatic uh, power to convert the whole thing. You couldn't add some volley uh, to it that wasn't malted. Nowadays, of course, the malt is so wonderful, the enzymatic power is so high, we can add all kinds of things to the mash and still convert it. Now, I believe that the whiskey would have been made from a whole malt mash, just as the Scotch whiskey, the single malt Scotch whiskey, is made today from all, all barley malt. Americans would use all rye malt. So we did that, and um, we started buying malted rye. And not too long after that, some of our copycat competitors started making rye beer, and we've lost. We don't think it's any good to speak of. Uh, of course, we wouldn't. You can you can guess. We don't we don't have open minds that act. We don't pretend to. monster went to our competitors and said, "Hey, you know, Anchor's buying the rye and malt. Uh, don't you think you should uh, be working on a rye beer?" <laughs> and so I came to some of these rye beers, and nothing came from Anchor because we had ours in the wooden barrel. Uh, and so we did. We finally released uh, our first batch of whiskey, 1,440 bottles, I think it was, uh, a couple of years ago. We're still selling it. The people ask me, "How's the whiskey going?" I say, "It's just going great. We're not selling very much, but we got the world by the tail." We got the most traditional, wonderful American whiskey. It's pop distilled, all malt whiskey, the only pop distilled whiskey in America, the original rye whiskey. And so we got the world by the tail. It's just like the beer business was in the 60s. The world doesn't know that we have them by the tail, but we do. And that's one reason I did it. It's for morale. I'm sure you can imagine we have 1,200 competing microbrewers or small brewers today. And some of my people, my staff, have only been with us five or ten years. They weren't there when we had the world by the tail. We did. We thought we had the world by the tail. We just had that wonderful feeling that you have when you know you're doing something wonderful and that you're making a great mousetrap and that the world is just probably going to come to your door. Anyway, we have that feeling now again, even on a small scale, because of the vision. Yes. Oh boy, um, my impression uh, of the of the uh, evolution of the industry from Anchor's perspective. Uh, well, I'll say the truth. Well, sort of the truth. Um, we had a great thing going there for a while, and we had some good competitors who were fun to be around, the Mendocinos and Sierra Nevadas of this world. Uh, but it's been pretty much screwed up. Uh, I tell my people, it's like a hurricane. Uh, no matter how good your boat is or how well you tied it up, when a hurricane comes, you have to worry. And we have a hurricane now in the brewing business, and we're worried. We're hoping to survive. When people tell me, oh, you guys will survive, oh, you got a great name, and name. I say, well, I'm glad to hear that. But then I tell my staff, uh, unfortunately, it looks like if we do survive, we're not going to get any credit. We are scrambling. We are competing. We have been for many years. We are thinking. We're fighting. We're trying not to beat everybody, but to survive. It is chaos out there. Many of our arch competitors are either, uh, you know, contract brewers who don't even have breweries. Um, and some of them are have gone public and have large amounts of money. Many of them, of these people, are losing money. A lot of money. Every day they're losing money. And they can keep doing that until they run out of money. And we can't keep, we can't lose money. But we're scared. It's very competitive. When I say losing money, I mean the prices of the beer are now very competitive. And 
people have these huge investments in breweries and they need to get the capacity. So we have now, among the microbrewers and craft brewers, and the big brewers pretending to be microbrewers, we have a, a really uh, scary competitive situation. We hope that out of it will come a really happy, thriving group of, of really competitive, creative people like we had 10, 15 years ago. But it's been flooded uh, by uh, just a bunch of nonsense, frankly, in my opinion. So it's not hard to make fairly good beer, and people have printed up labels and contract brewing and stuff. You walk into your neighborhood store, it, it's just a joke. It's no wonder that the media has started joking about it. You go into beverages and more, and there are hundreds of beers that don't have any reason to be there, in our opinion. Of course, we're going to ask for an anchor point of view, but we love the Seattle's and the Mendocinos and the Red Hooks and the Full Sail and stuff. We don't love them to death, but you know, we created a category together. Anchor would never have made it if it hadn't been for this category that we all created together. Uh, but we're, we're not happy. We're scared. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Well, I would say to you that it hasn't really been a criterion for us other than that I like new stuff. I'm, one of the reasons that I'm a success is that I've got Linda Rowe, I mean, our companies, I've got Linda Rowe and Mark Carpenter and Gordon McCurry and Phil Rogers, all of whom are uh, orderly people, and I'm not, I admit it. Uh, I went to see an efficiency expert once and said, well, you're about a one, and I could get you up to about a three, but that's it. Uh, it's almost like a personality defect, I think. But I do see things ahead, and I like to do new things. I like to be to have the first real American whiskey in modern times. I like to have the first wheat beer. I like to have the first dry hops ale in modern times. And I also like the purest point of view that things should have a theme. In other words, this is not just a dry hop ale, but it's all malt and it's whole hops and all that stuff. Um, so I guess it's been a theme only in that it's. it's well, I guess it has been a theme uh, for our company and for me. I don't think I could honestly say we're looking at any new ideas in brewing right now. The small beer was we thought was a great idea. This, I've heard some rumors that we weren't the first, and not, I'm not surprised. There's never a first in this world. But we thought it was pretty neat to make it out of old foghorn, and, and I like that a lot. Uh, we're not, and we're focusing on that uh, right now. It's not, we're not working on anything other than the, our new Christmas sale. We, we're doing two interesting things this year to the Christmas sale. I can't tell you. We started, we brewed the first one on, uh, I was thinking about maybe you would enjoy to hear about that. We brewed the first one on Tuesday, the first two on Tuesday. Uh, and they were both just total disasters. Uh, I'm sure you'll appreciate that. I came to work, uh, I don't know, 9 o'clock or whatever, and I knew something was wrong. There were too many people in the brew house. And, uh, you know, and uh, there was a guy with a oar uh, rowing in the mash tun. You know, you're not supposed to row uh, in the mash tun. And I've done it many times myself. Uh, what had happened, we're not sure what happened. We think that the malt, malt was not ground as fine as we should have. And because it comes from this farm in Tule Lake, it's completely different. It's just this one farm malt that we use for the Christmas sale, or for the pale component of it. And it can vary from
from year to year. It's the same variety, but maybe this year the kernels are smaller. Anyway, we think that what happened was that it wasn't crushed as fine as it should have been, and uh, it was stuck at the bottom physically. In other words, we had the propeller on, but it wasn't it wasn't floating. You know what I mean? So it took a long time, but we did finally get it floating. Uh, it was in there a lot longer than it should have been in the 140 degree range, and um, so we're not sure whether it would be a good example or not. And then we made the second one, the same damn thing happened. I guess they tightened up a little bit on the rollers. I'm not sure, uh, but the same darn thing happened. So now we've tightened up a lot more on the rollers. Yeah, really. Well, it'll be pretty good. The question is, the problem is when we make the Christmas ale, the first few brews are vitally important because we need to go in there and taste them and smell them and see if we think we're getting what we thought we were getting and not overdoing it. We've done some things that if we overdid it, it would be yucky. You know, I mean, people would say, oh, God, it tastes like such and such a herb or something. And we don't want you to be able to taste any one thing. We want you to have kind of a mysterious taste. Uh, my time must be up. Yes, over there. Oh yeah, we blend it. Uh, sometimes we send it to Sweden. Uh, we met, we have several in the old days, especially. We used to have several markets for Christmas ale that were isolated, like North Carolina or something. I'm not saying that's one, but and we would have the first few brews. We would start blending, but it was too late to blend out the number one and three or something. And so we would maybe blend, but not as well as we'd like. We definitely do blend. We have to blend, uh, especially because it's they're all just. It's an experimental brew, and we're not really in the groove. By the time we quit, we're still not in the groove, so we do definitely blend. Uh, but we have actually sent some somewhat atypical Christmas ale to a very distant market and hope that nobody compared with the other. <laughs> Last question? Yes. Yeah, we haven't released it here. We've released it in New York, and the only reason is that we have a terrific distributor in New York, and we were dying to get it going. The reason we haven't released it here is we're about to change distributors. We asked our master wholesaler as a beer distributor to distribute it for, to get a license and distribute it. We couldn't do it ourselves. There is a three-tier system in California for spirits, not for wine or beer, but the distillery cannot deliver to the retailer his own spirits. So we asked our distributor to distribute our whiskey for us as a favor. Uh, we're going to a wine and spirits wholesaler named Chambers and Chambers. They're going to have my wine also, which is releasing a wine from my vineyard after 30 years and finding the wine. But uh, I'm going to have the same distributor doing both, which I think will be convenient for me. We just didn't want to confuse him and say, look, you got to take on the gym, but we're going to take it away from him. It just doesn't seem like a good thing. So we're just waiting for the week to show up. No, it'll be in stores and restaurants. It's priced. Uh, at the uh, top vodka level. If you go to the gin section where the herbs and botanicals are, in true gins, you know, you really do distill. You can make a fake gin with flavors. But if it says distilled dry gin, it's, it's literally distilled with the authentic botanicals in the still, which is how we made ours. And, um, if you go to the gin section, the prices are all more or less the same, and there's not enough price there to make a profit for a little guy to have fun. Uh, so we looked around and saw that in the vodka section, which where there's no flavor at all by definition, nonetheless there's a higher price tier the Grey Goose and uh, those special vodkas are supposedly special. So we priced our gin at that top vodka price, hoping that the public will accept that, and they just seem to be in New York. Now, one of the problems is that you can't make a 
fight the Angus demon, the old man. Who's going to buy it? If you have a gin that's delicious, but it's way too expensive, who's going to buy it? Because the bars are going to say, well, we're going to charge extra for a martini made with your gin. That's not going to be They can maybe charge a little extra, but not a whole lot. So it was a tricky question. I think that it's wonderful gin. I think if you, any of you like it gin and taste it, you'll agree that it's fun. It's uh, quite, uh, or, or rather, intense in character. I think it reminds me a little bit of the spruce beer that we made here. Well, I said there's only two ways to make spruce beer, with too much spruce or too little. Because nobody knows how much is ideal. I mean, you have to make it for a year before you knew, you see, and even then you might disagree. The last thing we want is for someone to taste our spruce beer and, and say, I don't taste any spruce. So the only thing you can do is to put in too much. And so everybody who tasted our spruce beer said, oh, that's way too much spruce. And we, I agree, it was. The only time I ever really enjoyed it was drinking it outdoors. There's something about being outdoors that it made it more good. So we did the same thing with the gin. We wanted to make a gin. How are you going to make a gin? Well, have, it's fun. It's interesting. It's characterful. We got a lot of experiment with all these different botanicals. We had a hell of a good time. But ultimately, we decided we want ours to have a little more. We want it to be a little more. Uh, and more of what is up to you to decide, but we think it's just a little more intense. Uh, so it's fun. We have some other things coming from the distillery. <laughs>